Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Romanoff. Romanoff. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov. You know she's a Romanov. Checking in for a Romanov. I'm Romanov. So tired of this Romanov shit. Nicholas Romanov. I could be a Romanov. He's a Romanov too. Hello and welcome to Still Watching the Romanovs. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. For the next few weeks, we will be covering the Amazon series, The Romanoffs, all episodes written and directed by Matthew Weiner. Um, if you have any feedback for us, we've, you know, we've, we haven't had any emails for a little while. So I just wanted to remind you that you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. This week, we'll be covering episode three, House of Special Purpose, directed by Matthew Weiner and co-written by Matthew Weiner and Mary Sweeney. Also, in this episode, we will have an interview with episode star Jack Houston. But before we get to that, Richard and I want to break down the episode, talk about some of the larger sort of discussion around the series itself and how that's reflected in this particular episode. We felt like this was a really good episode to talk about some of the meta stuff as it comes to Matthew Weiner, because this is an episode about the making of an episode of TV. So a perfect little, um, you know, Russian nesting doll of a story for us to, to break down. The basic premise being, uh, and I'm going to go through this really quickly because I, I have actually heard from some people who are listening to this podcast, but not watching the show. So, um, oh. you know, that's, <laughs> that's whatever. Oh. Thank you. I'm glad you guys like listening to our voices so much that, uh, you want to do that. But, uh, you know, the premise of the show of this particular episode. Uh, is that Christina Hendricks plays an actress named Olivia who was brought on sort of in the midst of the production of a miniseries about the Romanoffs. But instead of, you know, this modern, the Romanoffs loose interconnected thing that Matthew Weiner has done for Amazon, this miniseries about the Romanoffs is a historical depiction of 
their last days and, and sort of what happened in their relationship with the mad monk, Rasputin and all of that. Um, and things go from bad to worse for Olivia on the set of this show. And what we wind up getting is, you know, I think a pretty sharp commentary on, um, what showbiz um, and and, uh, yeah. and all the uh, prestige television, prestige television. Um, also, you know, like I'm, I'm glad to see that there's a, a female co-writer on this episode because I think a lot of this is about sort of the, the difficulties of being a woman um, in a production like this, both for Christina Hendricks character, Olivia and Isabella Huppert's character, Jacqueline, who is an actress turned director on the project. Um, other people of note in this episode, Paul Reiser plays Olivia's agent, Bob Isaacson, uh, or manager. And Mike Doyle plays, uh, an actor called Brian, who's playing Tsar Nicholas, who has like one of the funnier, uh, moments in the episode. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, I, I guess I want to start, you know, Richard, you, you texted me, I think, or messaged me when you were watching this episode to say you especially loved it. So what are some of your broader thoughts on why this episode stands out for you? I mean, I really, I mean, I like a backstage kind of thing. I always find that interesting. Um, and I really liked, uh, the mix of tone uh, and, and sort of style, you know, it's, it's half backstage comedy. It's half kind of supernatural, well, no, it's not halves. It's thirds. It's quarters. I don't know. It's just like, it's a lot of different things. The super, the supernatural aspect of it. Um, there, you know, the sort of darker satire. I just think it's really well fused together. Um, it kind of reminded me of a weird mix of Clouds of Sils Maria and Personal Shopper, which are both Olivier Assayas movies that I'm a big fan of. Um, and one is about ghosts, uh, and the other is about acting and, um, being a woman in the industry, uh, and sort of, uh, going somewhere intense in the middle of nowhere and having strange things happen. So, um, you know, it spoke to me on all those levels. And, um, obviously any episode of television, movie would play whatever it wants to be in which Isabel Huppert and Christina Hendricks get to exchange really, really biting insults, <laughs> uh, is, is up my alley. It's, it's interesting because the first time I watched this episode through, I was try I was looking for like the solution. Um, of, you know, what's happening to her, trying to figure it out. Um, and then when I was rewatching it a bit today, you know, knowing that there isn't really an easy answer, um, I was then able to just sort of like relax and lean into watching it, if that makes sense. And, um, your comparison to Clouds of Sils Maria, Personal Shopper, um, like you mentioned that to me when you watched it. So I had that in my mind as I was rewatching it today. And I was like, oh yeah, like, the what isn't really the point. The point is like the frustration and disorientation that she's feeling, uh, is this actual, like, um, is she being gaslit? Is this, um, you know, a, a, a byproduct of her grief having, you know, the Olivia characters just lost her mother. Um, you know, is it just an absurdist sort of commentary on what it's like to be a performer? Um, I would say yes, like to all those things, you know? And so that's, that's what it feels like to me. And I really enjoyed it much more like unclenching a little bit and letting that sort of wash over me. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something to be said and, and you see this, um, in, in a lot of, uh, independent cinema today, mostly foreign, uh, like non-English language stuff where it's sort of just, I mean, I guess Altman did this too, but like, it's just kind of a mood that holds a kind of cloud that holds lots of different interesting strands, interesting conversations about things. And like you said, nothing is solved or resolved, but like, I think that 
you have to kind of realign your expectation for something when watching something like that. But if you can settle into it and just be like, you know, we're not really getting anywhere linearly exactly, but we're just, it, it, they've just built an interesting house for a lot of like important or, you know, salient d- d- discussions. I think you can really get into it. Yeah. And I think especially as you mentioned this like dynamic between the Jacqueline character and Olivia as like two women in the industry talking about, you know, the hard road that they've had to walk to get where they are and the the way in which they're uh, like, you know, disinclined to cede any of the power that they've had to snatch um, in order to make things easier on the other person, or at least the Jacqueline character seems to be in, in that place. And that is really interesting, I think, um, especially right now, as we talk about sort of like women in the industry and what it takes to get where you are and the implication of what both of them have had to do to get where they are. And, um, y- you know, you watch this episode and the Olivia character, like, She's nice and she's polite throughout until she gets like pushed. But the, you know, the implication we get at the beginning of the episode is that like Olivia will always, she will be nice to the PAs and the costume people and stuff like that. But she has an expectation of like what she, what her stature has earned her. Which is, you know, it comes out in this conversation she has early on with uh, the Paul Reiser character where she says, like, you know, there was no, like, fruit basket, no flowers, no thank you card, no nothing in my room. And that, on the one hand, could seem entitled. But on the other hand, like, watching it the second time, I was just sort of like, if you're an actress or anyone insecure walking into the midst of something that's already, like, existed without you, you, uh, me, I'll just speak for myself. I really need to feel like I wanted there. And that's what like the, the first part. And then the whole thing really is like her doubt that she's even wanted that she's needed. Why is she there? You know, and then the pressures of trying to perform under that cloud of like, am I even wanted here? What happened to the woman who was here before me? Everyone's talking trash on this actress who was here before me. Like, are they going to talk trash on me after I'm gone? All of that, 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 that just like mood, as you say, of uncertainty and doubt and suspicion that it all creates that I found really fascinating. Yeah. Because I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, mostly with Olivia, um, but also with Jacqueline where it's about women trying to figure out, in, in, in a, in a really male dominated industry, a male dominated world or, you know, patriarchal world, where to assert themselves and how to do it and how much of themselves to give up. You know, I feel like that's why acting, um, or performance is, um, such a good sort of allegorical, um, framework for this kind of story. I mean, you see it in Black Swan to some extent. You mm-hmm. see it in like, I don't know, French Lieutenant's Woman, maybe like where, because the whole idea of this art is supposedly to give up yourself. But for women, that comes loaded with a lot of other implications. And, 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 you know, it's one thing for a method actor to walk around and be sort of in his role and, you know, give himself over to the director's whims. But what does that mean for a woman? Even if it's a woman directing it, you know? Um, and I think that I'm grateful that that stuff was mulled over while also you know, we were told this kind of weird, interesting sort of story. Um, that said, I think it's also telling that this is the first of the episodes we've seen so far that has a co-writer on it. And it is a woman, um, you know, given 
uh, what's going on with Matthew Weiner right now. Yeah. So this is uh, maybe like the, the entryway to talk about that is that, you know, um, we actually got a couple people. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hesitated to even mention this. We, we got a couple people asking us not to do this series, um, as a, as a podcast, um, installment because of the accusations, fairly credible accusations around Matthew Weiner in terms of the way in, in which he treated at least one female member of his staff, but maybe women in general, or actually maybe just people in general, uh, who worked for him on Mad Men. Um, I don't know, Richard, what are, what are your thoughts on this? And, and, um, what, if any hesitancies do you have around, I don't know, doing, doing this podcast at all? I mean, I was certainly hesitant and I think that, you know, something that people in our line of work have to sort of consider is now, am I being hesitant about it because I don't think it's worthy of being covered or because I don't want to deal with the, you know, the sort of blowback if, you know, from people who are saying, why are you covering it? You know, and I don't honestly always know the answer to that. I think that I certainly avoid covering certain topics or reviewing movies in a certain way because I'm just like, uh, there's a, there's a way to talk about this movie without addressing X, you know, and I, that's a failing on my own part. And, you know, so I think that for me, I, believe that Matthew Weiner, you know, has been, you know, I believe people say who, who say that he's been, uh, mistreated them, uh, harassed them even. Um, I, but it feels, oh God, I don't know. It just, it feels different somehow. Is that at all fair? Is that a horrible thing to say? No, I don't think it's a horrible thing to say at all. I think the thing that I would say is, you know, like, the 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 chief allegation against Matthew Weiner comes from a former assistant of his, and then she was later a staff writer on Mad Men, Cater Gordon. She won an Emmy in 2009 for co-writing a season two episode, and then was not back on the series. And she says that Weiner, one night when they were working on the series, that, that he said to her that he was owed getting to see her naked. Right. The thing that's interesting to me about this whole particular allegation um, is that I don't know that, that I've ever seen Weiner really like um, deny it in that. I think he would say, yeah, I say things like that was a joke and I say things to people and I treat people in a certain way and I probably shouldn't, but that's, you know, that's something that I did. And, and Marty Noxon who worked on, on Mad Men said she believed Kater Gordon when she said this, the thing is like, I can see someone like Matthew Weiner saying that and I can see him seeing it as like something sort of harmless or boy clubby and it being very much not harmless or boy clubby for the woman who experienced it, you know, and him having this like tunnel vision of, um, you know, one worldview and, and, it wasn't that long ago. 2009 is not that long ago, but it's still actually quite a long time ago in our culture. And so, I, you know, I don't know. It's complicated, I think, for both of us. I'm definitely not trying to make excuses for anyone at all. No, uh, no. And, and, yeah. and I don't think either of us are saying we don't believe this woman and what she said is true. Um, but I, I don't know that if in my personal threshold of what gets you quote unquote canceled these days and what doesn't that I consider this like a cancellation of Matthew Weiner. I consider it a troubling part of his legacy. I, I consider it a potential that he 
learn from that experience. I consider there to be potential that he didn't learn from that experience. But what's also interesting is having talked to a lot of people who worked on this project, um, you know, nobody has told me a similar story uh, about the Romanovs. So I, I don't know. I mean, like, what do you... I, yeah, we're sorry that we're stumbling over this. It's just, it's hard. And, and, and Joanna and I don't, you, you, we, we don't talk about this on mic much, you know, or like publicly. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking back to the Wesley Morris uh, piece that he wrote for the New York Times about sort of cancel culture and, you know, when do we decide to sort of cast something, you know, cast something aside because... Uh, of what its creator did. And it's a complicated piece. I think it's a little bit reactionary in a way. Uh, you know, I think he's setting up some kind of false equivalences and, and, and I think that a lot of people who responded to it agreeing with him, it seemed like it was a lot of, I don't know, straight white people who were saying, Oh, thank God you're right. Like we, you know, they were kind of just saying, Oh, we don't have to be concerned about this at all, actually. Like, because cancel culture has just gotten out of hand. And I, and I certainly wouldn't want to like, no, find myself in that same space of being like, Oh, see, I can point to this and that's why I can cover whatever I want, no matter who, you know, who made it or whatever. And I, and I, I don't feel that we're there with covering this show, but, um, it's something that I'm trying to be conscious of, uh, in, in terms of exonerating myself. Uh, from having to pay attention to things. Um, you know, just last night I tweeted something about a comedian and I was watching her Netflix special and I said, Oh, it's really funny. And then like immediately two people were like, uh, Richard, like XYZ, here's why she's bad. And I went and looked and I was like, Oh, you're right. And I, you know, I was like, you know, I just, I, I needed to know more about her. And, you know, I deleted the tweet. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. But like, this is all a process. And I think that in this show's case, ignoring it or i i guess we're kind of hot giving it special highlight by having it on this podcast but like i think that that just pretending it doesn't exist exist isn't exactly the way to do it um maybe people out there disagree with how engaged we are with this show um but i think that there is reason to be and um it's thus far in this episode included proven that merit yeah and and I think we have to just constantly be um, honest with ourselves about where our line is, where our threshold is. I'm not going to like, I do think cancel culture has gotten out of hand um, a little bit, but that's not to say I think it's necessarily a bad thing because I do think there needs to be strong pushback on so many people. And so I'm not here to tell you listener or any, or someone who's chosen not to listen to this podcast because Matthew Weiner's canceled for them who does or does not deserve to be canceled by you cancel whoever you want. It's, it's even a weird phrase that we even say this nowadays, cancel someone, um, cancel whoever you want. I am not going to automatically cancel every single person you're going to cancel though. So for myself, Matthew Weiner still has some interesting things to say, even in both the ways in which he consciously engages in this, which I think he must be doing in this episode and in the ways that he is oblivious to it and that that is of interest to me. And I mean, that's how I feel about Mad Men. I think Mad Men is getting like a bit of a, um, I don't know, a reconsideration in, in, in the wake of the Matthew Wenner, um, I don't know, allegation. Um, you know, some people are like, well, was Mad Men sort of really actually bad all along or something like that? And I, I mean, to that, I say a hearty no. And I would say there are ways in which Mad Men 
was aware of itself and engaging with the dynamic that it was putting forth. And there are ways in which Mad Men was nostalgic for that dynamic at the same time. And I find it interesting to watch a creator grapple with both of those things. And I think what we see in the Romanoffs is a creator who is both skewering power and entitlement of um, men and in some cases women. And also just like his fascination with it belies worshipfulness of that kind of power. Matthew Weiner, I think, is in and of himself a contradiction. And the way in which he explores that contradiction is interesting to me and to Richard and maybe to you, listener. And and I think you're right, you know, um, that we're all going to have different metrics in terms of, you know, what we want to sort of grapple with and what we want to ignore. And um, some good things are going to go. You know, if we're going to try to do this reckoning as a culture and, and, and get to a place where we don't have to constantly say, well, this thing was made by this shitty person who did this shitty thing. Like maybe we'll actually get to a spot where like good people are making good things. I don't know. Maybe that's naive, but, um, but yes, I don't, I wouldn't, I would never mean to tell someone they're wrong for not wanting to watch the show, but, um, I like you am still interested in what Weiner's doing. Um, and, I think a long, a, lo- a big part of that is he at least admits it happened. You know, he might like his, the, the, his context for admitting it might not be great, but like that's more than others have done. So, um, and I think it's interesting to, to go back to this episode that he's doing it with Christina Hendricks, who I think, I don't know, maybe you would disagree with me on this. I feel like Joan Holloway mm. of the, of the two main women suffer or three main women on the show suffered the most mightily on that show. Yeah, I guess it depends on your definition of suffer, but, um, ab- I mean, you know, yeah. absolutely. The compromises that she felt like it's a similar thing. The compromise that Joan Holloway felt like she had to make, uh, in order to snatch whatever power she could in that position, um, are different from the compromises that, um, that both Betty Draper and Peggy Olson had to make, you know, and, and to us, a modern audience watching, more just blatantly harrowing, you know, and there's this gift. It's so funny because like Matthew Weiner, you know, I, I do want to bring it back more concretely this episode, but I will say really quickly, it's, it's funny. The lens through which we, we see a lot of the stuff is like Twitter and online and stuff like that. And, and it's funny to, to think of Matthew Weiner as like a canceled person, a canceled creator for some people. And at the same time, see that gif of, um, Joan and Peggy in the elevator being like, someday I just want to burn this whole place down used like so often as like a fuck the patriarchy sort of iconic Mm -hmm. thing. And I'm just sort of like, yeah, the man, the man who created that is someone, you know, it's like, that's the inherent contradiction. Um, and so, yeah, I, I see a lot of parallels between Joan and this Olivia character Though the Olivia character is from this, like the Joan character at the beginning of Mad Men, it's sort of like Peggy shows up at the very beginning of Mad Men and she's sort of this like wide eyed, doesn't know what she's doing. And Joan is, a, is much more seasoned and, and not necessarily kind to Peggy when she gets there because Joan's like, I've carved out my space. You need to carve out your own and I'm not here to carve it out for you. And I kind of feel like that's the flipped dynamic that we see in this is like Olivia arrives at the set and she's very kind and sweet on the outside. And Jacqueline's like, that's nice. I'm not here to make 
a space for you. You have to make a space for yourself. And, you know, I've gotten to where I've gotten, you still have a road to go on your own. And uh, I don't know. I, I just think it's interesting, like something that you hear a lot about women who become directors or producers in these roles of power in Hollywood, like they feel like they have to be, uh, even more, um, aggressive than their male counterparts in order to be taken seriously. I don't know that I would consider like Jacqueline, like so like masculine in any way in her aggression, but she's just, she doesn't have space um, to coddle anyone. And I find that a really interesting uh, portrayal. Well, I think also that there's something uh, I agree that it's an interesting character and um you know, the way she sees it, she, she had to scrape and scramble just to get this one job. And, you know, we don't know exactly her full backstory. Maybe she did, but she was also a famous actress. Right. You know, so like in this way that a lot of people can position themselves in their, this sort of, you know, hero's journey narrative where they, you know, they, they beat all the odds to get where they are, but there's always, or not always, but a lot of the time there is a context around them a sort of support structure that, you know, while Jacqueline is saying, you know, she is, is, is right maybe to say to Olivia, like you need to earn, you need to be, figure out how to be here on your own. Um, thereby implying that she has, well, there were other, but there were other institutional things helping Jacqueline get to where she is. So I don't know. I think it's an interesting dynamic. Um, in, in that regard, I think it's also just interesting, uh, and kind of nice in a way to, to have Weiner back in, if, you know, filming a workplace. Um, yeah. Because you're so good at that. Yeah. And, uh, just those dynamics and the ways that people can be, um, both cruel and supportive and undermining and collaborative. And, you know, I think that that's, that's a very interesting aspect of the workplaces that he creates. Um, and I think that's on display here. Do we think that it's, how much of this we were supposed to take? like as fact do you know what i mean because i've i'm taking almost all of it very credibly and i'm not sure maybe i'm i'm taking the wrong tack here does everything that we see actually happen if so to what end like i understand the end you know um olivia is sort of like duped into thinking that she's traveled back in time and she's part of this like final night of the roman ops and stuff like that in order to deliver like the performance that is needed but to what end the, the ghostly apparition in her room you know like to what end a pa being told not to talk to her and pretend that she can't speak english to what end a concierge like lying to her and saying there is no bar when there is one like why gaslight your actress to, to to that degree um is it to make her more you know paranoid and 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 unhinged the way that maybe alexander was in her final days like what what is the the point of all this yeah so it's interesting though that you kind of have were you reading it as all of this kind of weird stuff was all part of this broad plan to to get her there or was it or is it just that final bit where they staged the the march to the execution. It felt like uh, that this woman was being messed with. Uh, I wasn't sure <laughs> this is all part of me trying to solve it. When in the end I told you, like, I think the conclusion <laughs> is I shouldn't try to solve it, but like that this woman was being messed with um, in order to elicit the kind of performance from her that they felt like they needed. Um, but it's, 
you know, and, and, and who cares what price, what toll that takes on her. And I see that as a, you know, as an extreme version of, of the paces that certain performers, actresses or actors are put through by their directors. Do you see it as different? Do you see it as like symptoms of her grief or actual supernatural things happening? Or, or what do you see about that? I mean, I'm kind of going the actual supernatural things happening route for whatever reason. Cool. Um, just because I think it's there even earlier in the episode, there's this moment when, and it's a really striking moment where she first gets to set and she meets Jacqueline and other people on the crew. And then they're ready to film a scene, which is basically just some, I think they're they're Bolsheviks Mm -hmm. out in the middle of the night, throwing bodies into a pit and then lighting the pit on fire. I think it's supposed to be the Romanov bodies. Yes. Um, and we see it, that kind of drags on like the, the, the burying, like the, it takes a little while longer than, you know, normally we, I think we would see that, uh, from her perspective anyway. And she's kind of looking at it horrified. Um, and I think a couple interesting things are happening there. One being, I feel in a way it's kind of a commentary on the sort of ornate violence of prestige TV, like Game of Thrones or Rome or whatever, you know, uh, that when you see it from her, from the vantage point of it being filmed and that it's all artifice, it seems kind of gross. So I thought that was interesting. But I think also looking back to the end of the episode, is that not some glimmer of the real, um, Alexandra almost inhabiting Olivia uh, uh, Olivia, and seeing it through her eyes as if it's actually her family and herself, you know? So I feel like the ghosty, haunty stuff even kind of happens right there. Well, you have, what you have is um, Samuel character played by Jack Houston and uh, the Olivia character played by Christina Hendricks witnessing their character's own death from a remove because you have that later scene where she and Samuel go watch Rasputin be dumped in the river, right? And, um, I think it speaks to the larger question of this episode in show business or in the production of art, who is doing the chewing and who gets chewed up. And like, I think the, uh, the person doing the chewing, uh, most, uh, is the Paul Reiser character. Um, but you, I, I feel like you see, I would see the Jacqueline character as someone who, who has been chewed up and, gotten to a place where she gets to do some of her own chewing for, you know, her art, she says. The Paul Reiser character, Bob Isaacson, who we meet mostly on the end of the phone and then is at the, you know, assures um, Olivia that he's come to rescue her and at the very end, like, he and Jacqueline are the two hanging over her being like, it was worth it, basically, and she's dead and Olivia's dead. Um, you know, that they're they're the vultures, they're the consumers. And, and, and what's fun about the gender dynamics in this episode is that you've got like Jacqueline in this position of being able to chew people up, but like the Samuel character also seems to be chewed up, like along with Olivia, like he gets thrown in a van and like taken off in the dead of night. Like you don't know what happened to him there. Right. Oh, that's um, right. That's never resolved. Is it? No. And so like, he's also, I mean, like as much as he's sort of like a menace to her, uh, in certain ways, he's also sort of like tossed about by this production. And so you've got like men and women on both sides of this, of this dynamic. And it's, uh, that's, that's pretty fascinating to me. Cause I think, I think, it would be, I really think this episode is less effective if you have 
a man in the in the Isabelle Hubert role. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's really oh, much, sure. much more interesting that it's two women sort of locked in this dynamic, and then you've got these satellite men also engaging in the dynamic. So, and it's two women who it seems to be are the most famous people in the room. I mean, I think that uh, that Samuel's supposed to be famous, but like. There's a lot of talk about how much power Olivia has. Obviously, Jacqueline has power. And yet they're telling a story that, you know, I don't know what this fake miniseries does with Alexandra or any of the other women, maybe Anastasia, whoever else. But, like, the the story is one of men, in a way. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the leader of Russia was a man and uh, the Bolsheviks were largely men, from my understanding. Maybe I'm totally off about that. But, um, you know, so that, that kind of challenges it. And, and, and I think that I do feel like from an, uh, the perspective of art about art, there's something I, I like, the, I like the idea of this production being cursed, having something to do with like, what responsibility does this kind of fancy high high gloss television oh to history and oh to its subjects and and this whole idea that you could just change the ending and they survive um and in fact that that's what the ghost of the dowager would want you know if you believe that she was actually possessed Jacqueline's body mm-hmm. um i feel like that's what weiner having a little fun with or weiner having a little fun with his own legacy in terms of Mad Men and what so many other fancy television, so so much other fancy television is trying to do um, in terms of accuracy. And, you know, um, I, I had to do this terrible thing because that's what happened. I had to do this. I had to treat these characters terribly because that's how they were treated. You know, we see that we see that excuse trotted out a lot for Game of Thrones. Well, it was just a, it was a violent time. When was a violent time? This isn't a real thing, you know, so <laughs> my favorite. I, I, I think that, um, I think that maybe there's a little of that going on where we're supposed to be sort of appalled by the ahistoricity of 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 a, of a, of a Romanov story that ends with them, you know, fleeing to Paris. But like, but why? Like, why couldn't we just do that? This is all makeup, you know. Yeah, and what's interesting, I, I hadn't thought about this, but when you brought up the Dowager, what's interesting is that these supernatural elements, um, or these 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 Romanovs that are making themselves feel known in this episode. Um, are all women, right? Cause it's like a little girl ghost. It's the Dowager, Alexandra. I don't feel like I feel Nicholas or even Rasputin, uh, despite the fact that Samuel has like a shrine to him, uh, in his hotel room. That's an amazing bit of comedy, I think, in this episode. But like, um, I don't feel like you get that male perspective, whereas you have these female ghosts sort of haunting this story and being like, what about what about us? What about our lineage? What about our legacy? What about what was done to us? You know, and the yeah. the thing that you mentioned um, in in last week's episode, where you were, you mentioned how the Romanov women had like sewn their jewels in, you know, a possibly apocryphal story. The Romanov women had sewn their jewels inside of their dresses so that when they were shot, the guards had to then go through and stab them all because. Uh, the jewels like deflected the bullets and you see that in in the reenactment that we get in this episode that you know i was like oh just wait for it it's coming but it's that's a brutality that's a brutal thing that happened only to the romanov women 
um, you know, in this context. So I, I think that's yeah. interesting as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is coming out way before the movie will, but like there, th- in that way, it has an interesting parallel to Luca Guadagnino's remake of Suspiria, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very much about supernaturally, you know, uh, supernaturally gifted women, maybe let's say, uh, getting some sort of revenge for the sins of history wrought by men, you know? Um, and uh, I, I don't think that that's quite as, you know, on the nose here. Uh, I mean, it's not as about that as, as it is in Suspiria, but it's just interesting to think about that kind of thing of, you know, and even the way that I framed it, well, this is a story about men. I mean, which, what, that was a dumb thing for me to say. N- no story on earth is about men, it, you know, only. I mean, there were, there were always women affected. There were always women active, passive, whatever, you know, the whole gamut of things. And not, maybe not always and not every situation, but you know what I mean? And, or am I crazy? Am I, no, I, I know what you mean, but I, but I think that that's exactly the point. Is like it wasn't a dumb thing for you to say, but it's just sort of like, okay, Zar Nicholas is in power, and then these Bolshevik men overthrew him, and it's sort of like the women do just at, at times can feel like, you know, mothers and wives and daughters that are just sort of like I don't know insulation around the the men and the movers of history, and you know that's that's what the era of Mad Men could be considered as well. But then like, you know, that series Mad Men took us inside the lives of these women, that, that like trio of Peggy, Joan and Betty, which are just like three very different women that I find so freaking fascinating uh, to, you know, to the point where that story felt as much or if not more about them as it did about these like men that history remembers and so, like, then this is, you know, the thing that history remembers. But what's interesting about the Romanov legacy is, like, it's not actually, you're right that it's a male story, like, Tsar Nicholas and the Bolsheviks, stuff like that. But, like, what history remembers is Anastasia, like, a woman, a Romanov woman is, like, the most famous Romanov. So. Yeah. Um, and also, some, it's also funny that the Romanovs were terrible people. Right. Like, the, the Tsars lived lavishly while people starved to death yeah. in Russia. Like, it was really bad. There's a reason the revolution happened. Yeah. Uh, and so I think all that veneration and, and also the dowager ghost, like she seems like a real piece of work. <laughs> like, she tri- like she gave that lady a heart attack. Like, yeah. uh, you know, so it's just, uh, I think there's a lot of interesting things, uh, happening on that front. And I think that, um, you know, having this conflict between women in the workplace in the, in the here and now and today and, and women who are, who are high status, uh, and yet still, um, they they are subject to a lot of the the bad whims of the patriarchy. Like I think that's interesting. What do you make of this scene when when Olivia uh, finally does find the bar and she and Jacqueline have that really nasty tete a tete? Um, is that like? I mean, I know what this episode was co-written by a woman, but is that like a man just kind of cheaply going for the 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 you know the quick insult, the obvious insult about you know someone sleeping with a guy or whatever or getting old? Um, or does that, how, how does that scene play for you? I think part of it played well for me and part of it didn't, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I think some of the things Jacqueline says about like, you know, it's obvious what you're doing is so obvious is boring. I think is what she says. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think some of that stuff, though it sounds a bit more spiteful. I mean, it's just so interesting because like, it seems like Jacqueline needs Olivia, but resents needing Olivia. And so then is lashing out Olivia. And that's, uh, you know, a very complicated dynamic. But some of the stuff that Olivia says back, like, I just don't know that I 
felt the ramp up to that uh, within the character. If that makes sense. Right. I, I mean, that, that line about it must be sad to watch the parade go by or something. Yeah, that feels... Like, that's a... That's a p- nice piece of writing, but it's also like, ugh, like, I don't know. Yeah. It just didn't feel earned, I guess. I, I agree. I agree with that. I, w- I would say that Olivia is the kind of, from what we've seen in the episode so far, Olivia is the kind of person who would like go running, gr- like, not as an insult to her, because what I would do, go run crying to her room if she were attacked in that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, that she's yeah, just, like, like, her pushback doesn't feel that consistent with the rest of her character. Right. Except for, I think, the pushback that we see in, like, the part where the Samuel character, like, sort of sexually assaults her uh, in, mm-hmm. in this church scene. That does feel earned and right and and um, a really compelling thing to watch. Um, yeah, I and think, she's, you know. you know, she's so great in that scene. And, you know, uh, like, I... It's probably incal. It, it is incalculable how many times that has happened. I'm sure mm-hmm. at rehearsals for a play, on set for a TV show or a movie, that some guy in under the guise, whether he's being sincere or not, of being in character, does something awful like that. Like that. That is like the story of act, you know women acting. Unfortunately, to sidestep that uh, quickly, just for like legal reasons, um, I'm like I just want to draw a quick line between what I'm about to say and what we just said. In other things, this character, the first person that I thought of when I saw this character was Jared Leto and like a lot of the antics that he doesn't set. There's no indication or allegation that any of that has been sexual in nature. So that's not something that I'm saying, but like, I'm, you know, we all heard the Jared Leto stories of like Suicide Squad and like, I don't know, the dead pigs that he would send or whatever it was he did. And, um, and even something like Blade Runner where like his character was blind so that he made all these PAs like lead him around and he pretended to be blind. I don't know. It's just like all this exhausting sounding nonsense that Jared Leto does. Um, and then, and then you, you thought of like a, a more venerated actor who does a lot of method. Um, but I think you brought up Daniel Day Lewis and uh, like either way, I think the Samuel character is a really effective skewering of like a kind of actor, you know? Oh, um, for sure. And, and I think the funny thing about that method thing, which again, Olivia does call him out on by name, you know, you know, sort of spitting the method in his face. Um, uh, is you look at someone like Daniel Day Lewis and who, you know, I don't know how apocryphal these stories are, but like, supposedly he, you know, will get so into character that, you know, you're talking to Daniel Plainview for three months or whatever. Um, and then you hear this about Jared Leto sending people pig's hearts and whatnot. And you look at those two performances and you're like, oh, well, maybe Daniel Day-Lewis is just a good actor. <laughs> and, and like, maybe he could have gotten there no matter what. And... You know, the method is sort of bullshit, but, uh, I don't, you know, I don't mean to poo poo an old, you know, acting theory, but it's to me, if it's ever used to exonerate that kind of bad behavior or excuse right. that bad behavior right. rather, like then, then the whole thing is completely ridic- ridiculous. I guess I just, I have no problem with your method as long as it doesn't, isn't like a massive burden on all the people around you when it gets to well, that. Right. And when it gets to that point, then it's just sort of like, all right, buddy, like, let's just calm down. Um, I, I think it's, this is a good moment to go to my interview with Jack Houston. And I did ask him who he was thinking of when he crafted this role. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party, or having family over, or even just cooking for yourself, when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this 
is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Hi, Joanna. Hello, how are you? Very good, how are you? I'm doing so well. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for speaking with me. Um, you're welcome. Well, I, I wanted to kick off by asking you how much you knew about uh, the Romanovs or Rasputin before you started uh, this project. Um, I knew a bit. You know, I, I, I've been saying it's a bit like that schoolboy history, you know, schoolboy friends, you know, like you, you, know, you know enough about it, but n- none of the real details. Um, Rasputin, I, it's so funny. Uh, uh, we all, I remember his face or these pictures of him. And those eyes, his startling eyes. So um, that was that was pretty cool when Matt caught up and said you'd be playing both Samuel Barlow, the actor, and Rasputin. I was like, oh, well, that's a fun one to get into. <laughs> You're wearing contacts, obviously, right? For that. For oh that look. man, those contacts were brutal. <laughs> oh, they were, were they? brutal. Oh. They were, yeah, but they, they were like these amazing hand painted sort of these like because you know it, I mean Rasputin as much for being sort of the mad monk and all the rest of it. He was um he was known for his eyes these sort of eyes that meant to sort of like mesmerizing you know you'd be transfixed when he looked at you and they were meant to be this like almost translucent blue, um, uh so we um we we actually rather than just getting like natural contacts we actually sort of exaggerated like like the whole episode we we put we sort of exaggerated the color of them and they were painted and I put them in and they were these thick it was like having a couple of rocks in your eyes oh, um, no. so that was um. Yeah, but no, but you know what? It, it all added to the character. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have such opportunity in this episode to, um, you know, make fun of or 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 genuinely critique sort of nightmare 
filming projects. Um, yeah. How much fun is that for you as an actor sort of, I don't know, exercise previous bad experiences or whatever it might be through, through this uh, particular <laughs> show? Yeah. I mean, you know, that was, I, I have to say we were laughing a lot in it. You know, that's the best part is like, Every now and again, you know, the, the great thing about Matt is, you know, he's overall, he's one of the great storytellers. And, uh, you know, the good thing when we were making this episode, the, we were all sort of regaling each other with uh, horror stories, uh, which was making us laugh a lot. You know, things because sometimes, you know, although it's an exaggerate, you know, it's like I said, it's a, a culmination of every terrible experience one could have on every set put into one. It's like the worst ever set one could ever imagine themselves finding themselves on. Um but um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was it was a lot of fun, and you know, it, even the characters. It's like you know, it's like that exaggerated of like the type of act, the worst type of actor to work with, the worst director, the agent, the production itself, from you know above and below the line. Um, so you know, it it, it 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 it's like that. I said it's like a horror comedy. This yeah. one. It's, uh, we yeah. We, uh, we were all laughing a lot in it, as well as like it being rather startling at certain times as well. So. Obviously, I, I would never ask you to name names, but I am curious if you had certain actors in mind when crafting Sam Barlow and his sort of extremes uh, that he would go to in order to stay into character or to get the exciting Many. Feeling. Many. <laughs> Many. No, no, by the way, it's so funny. I, 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 I'm hoping that people won't watch it and say, God, it was just like you. <laughs> you're like oh that no would be, that would be that would be the worst part that would be the worst thing no it, it's funny it, because that because it's so it, he's so sort of unlike me in many ways but um i guess when i said but it, it, that was sort of like the fun about doing it because you know when matt called me he was like we have like a, a lot of connect tissue and people we've worked with and, uh, uh, you know, he, he obviously from The Sopranos and I got to work with David Chase on the movie and then uh, Terry Winter, obviously on Boardwalk and then David O. Russell, their great friends. So we have a lot of uh, connected tissues. So he uh, he did come specifically to this to me for this part, which I don't know if to take as an insult or as, a, <laughs> as I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure. Um, no, it's a compliment, huge compliment. Um, it it is a compliment. That's how I took it. He wasn't saying like, no, but uh, you know, we do talk about the method and stuff like that. I said, I've never, I've always, I'm a character actor. I, I obviously sometimes can't help but take something away with you when you're going into sort of like deeper, darker places. But, um, Samuels, uh, takes it to a whole new level when she comes in and sees his shrine to Rasputin with the candles. (laughs) <laughs> you mentioned that you and Matt, you know, have all these mutual people in common, but um, you got to work with Christina, who obviously has worked with Matt uh, for so long. Yeah. Did she have any, you know, Matt is Matt is a very singular type of person to work with both writers, a writer, director, visionary. Um, did Christina have any tips for you of sort of how to navigate this particular set? Well, you know what? From the moment we sort of all got together, it was like the nicest set I've ever. It was so everyone was so happy, including Matt. The one thing Christine said, she said, um, she said to Matt, she's like, "I've never seen you this happy," <laughs> because I think even for the nine Emmys or whatever he got for Mad Men, I think he was pulling his hair out every day because you know I think it's just a tireless job. This was his passion project. He, you know. He he was so happy to be making this, and it was and it so came through, and everyone was so sort of excited to be there. 
um, that, um, you know, the one thing she, you know, she said, which is to, to, to Matt's credit, she was like, the great thing is you always know you're in good hands. Like, he um he 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 will micromanage everything and saying like to the uh, in the best possible sense i'm not that's in no way a negative thing i loved it because you really completely give yourself over to him because he you know that he's thought about everything uh you know if a hair is out of place how high the hands move where your voice range should be at this moment how you should look up where, how to walk into a room it's very, very. It's like I say. It's the complete opposite of the of the the series that we were pretending to make. Right. <laughs> and what what is your understanding of what the larger theme of the idea of the Romanovs and and what that you know means? These like people who claim a heritage who maybe claim to be exceptional whether or not they are um like what is what does that mean for the broader sense of series and like for this episode specifically um okay so uh, the, the funny thing is i know nothing about any of the other episodes so oh, i actually fun. have ne- <laughs> i have I, I have not read anything i have not seen anything i am going to be as surprised as anyone else when i'm watching it for the first time um so um Literally, we were saying my episode, but I mean, our episode, maybe I'm not sure about the other episodes, but in ours, um, it's more, it's about identity. It's about confidence, about who we are. It's, um, I, you know, our, our episode, I think, is um, I, I don't want to say a lighthearted because, it, you know, as we know, you know, what the fight, the big finale is of the episode. But it, it, I think it's um, Matt wrote our episode. It, it, I think it's one for entertainment. It's a very fun episode. Obviously, it's got the underlying connective tissue of the Romanovs and like one sort of who we are and obviously struggling with oneself. Uh, but, you know, that comes across as much, I think, as um, Christina's character as an actress, uh, you know, in it. I say with Olivia, she's struggling with her identity, as is Jacqueline with her identity as a director and as a, a woman in the business as they talk about how hard it's been and then a rivalry. And then for me very much, my identity is like, you know, uh, w- w- what a name does and it is playing the role. You know, it's, it's interesting. That's I, I, my episode uh, alone. I, 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 I don't know much about the others. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that that's perfect. And, and you know, it's interesting. Um, I've heard that, Matt had these, uh, like a very specific set of rules, uh, for these episodes that he, um, actually went to, to the length of, of printing out for himself. And among them are, are this idea of, uh, banishing coincidence, avoiding pretension and making sure each episode is self-contained. Are these rules something you guys talked about on set? Uh, and if not, you know, were there moments where you could see him like t- really trying to avoid, I don't know, pretension is, is a trap that's so easy to fall into. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. He was very aware of that and um, talked about it. And that was the thing because it, that's, it's not, it, it, I, uh, that's my thing is Matt's one of the great storytellers. And I think Matt really about this, like we, it's entertainment. Like I'm saying as much as the tissue, like it within the episode, I think he's one of the, like, we're also watching this as an audience wanting to be entertained. And I think no one does that better. So he was very much like, you know, give yourself over to what we're doing in that funny way. Don't worry, you know, about it. Like, you know, that, that's the sort of fun of the job. And, you know, we should, you know, we're sort of making light of 
not light. We're actually sort of, I always say about our episode is it's probably close, like you, everyone will be able to, within the business and outside the business will be able to take something away from this, this episode, because it's, um, just because it happens on a set, like it's that work, the horror of working in an office or going to, uh, you know, one's job in a, uh, you know, building site or whatever it is. It's like, it's just one's meant to be a culmination of one's within oneself, their worst nightmare in a sense. There's like a right. nightmare. And do you like, it's, it's unclear to me. And, and I think it's probably meant to be unclear whether or not there are actual sort of supernatural aspects of this episode. Do you believe that there is something supernatural going on or, or what is your, what is your take on this particular episode? Well, I do. I think there is. I think there's something supernatural going on. I mean, I don't know. That's the funny thing is, I, I, it was that was what was sort of awesome about when we were shooting it is that everyone sort of had an opinion, but they all sort of changed. Like every every person one to the other, which is sort of what the whole show's about, isn't it? So it was like everyone sort of no one. No, I don't think anyone had a definitive answer. But my personal take on it is that i think some weird crap was happening but there, <laughs> but that that then it that then it went a bit further than it should you know i mean right. one, you, one played into it too much but yeah and and what's interesting to me is you know i just i just watched uh six episodes of the series and each episode is about you know close to an hour and a half um and so to me it feels like i was just at like a mini film festival you know each each episode feels oh yeah so cinematic and like it's it's its own contained beautiful independent film or something like that um you know i i was just wondering you know what are your thoughts on uh, you know matt weiner instead of making a conventional tv show has made I don't know, I think like eight movies um, and is releasing oh, them yeah. as a TV show. I think that's fascinating. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we are in the golden age of television right now. And by the way, the one thing that we do know is that films in general are slowly slipping. When I say film, I mean independent film. I think it's a really difficult time right now. It's very hard to get a movie made. And thank God that... Um, Something like Amazon uh, are, you know, letting Matt go and basically tell sort of eight individual films. I know that's the connected tissue that we talk about, but when I read my episode, I was like, oh, this is a great movie. Like, you know, it, it read like a film. It had a beginning, middle, and an end. It stood on its own two feet. It felt independent. And it, the brilliance of Matt will be, you know, how he's sort of interweaving each one. And there will be the, the, the connections, which uh, I can't wait to see for myself. But it is it's sort of a lovely um lovely thing that one's able because it, it's it's one wouldn't be able to go and do this uh in cinema right now you know right absolutely we talk all the time about the the death of the mid-level and the death of the independent film and it's only big blockbuster franchises now and there's not room for this kind of storytelling so it's moving to tv and um yes and exactly i think that's fascinating um i, I my last question for you is i've i've heard some fun stories about the extreme amount of detail that that Matt puts into his scripts, um, you know, more oh, so yeah. than maybe other other screenwriters. Uh, are there any details, like really, really specific details that you remember for your character? Where you're like, okay, well, that's just it's right there. I don't even have to think about it. Matt has has thought about it and put it into the script already. Uh, I by the way, I'm saying like everything was in there i mean like he really like i that, like i said i when i say micro to the micro detail like i'm saying 
Matt's on another level. I've never worked with someone with, with more attention to detail. Um, but that's the beauty of it. Like I said, you're giving yourself over to someone like that because you know they know best. <laughs> so he can, at, at any question you have, he'd have the answer, which I think is so comforting. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, there, there are a couple of times like where he added a line, but pretty much um, everything was there already i mean i'm just trying to i'm trying to think of something that like like he hadn't thought of or thing like that but we we discussed everything i mean he's down to the fine detail in like the costume the hair the makeup every single thing and it's all it was all his whole team as well from Mad Men. so everyone was like old friends which was great excellent well thank you so much again for your time and for this lovely episode and um Good luck if you have to do a million more interviews after this. Good luck with those. No, you know yeah. what, Johnny? You are my last. Oh, the last and the best. Excellent. Well, the um... last and the best. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. I'm with you. This is so nice. The lovely speaking to you. Thank you for the questions. You yeah. as well. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye, Janet. Bye, love. Bye, bye. All right. Well, we, you know, before we wrap up, we want to talk about the ending of this episode, um, you know, which is really like, I don't know. Like it happened and I was like, Oh my God, that's, that's where we're leaving it. And, 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 and that moment where, um, the Olivia character winds up dead, um, really crystallized for me what the episode was about. Well, how did it land with you? Well, yeah, I'm curious to hear what you have to say because I, I I was thinking about it afterward and, you know, I'm saying, did she have to die? Is it a kind of shitty view of, you know, women that, that she gets killed at the end. You know, I, I, I don't know, but I also think that, I don't know. I, this, this feels like a, a, a showrunner, a writer who has been accused of things, who wrote a seminal piece of television that was very much about misogyny, uh, almost apologizing in a way. If that makes any sense, like, look, I understand that in all of this, look, look, look what I did, you know, in, in the name of, of art. Yeah. Look what I did, yeah. you know, and, and so I don't think that he is making Olivia any weaker by the fact that she dies. It's more the forces kind of bearing down on her where it's, were too much to handle. Yeah. No, I, I don't think it positions Olivia as weak at all. Uh, that, that wasn't my takeaway is not like, oh, you know, he, he had to make the woman so vulnerable. It's just sort of like, yeah, the, the, the system, the maliciousness of the system and, and how little regard it has for the women, especially that it chews up and spits out. Um, once again, I guess I would go back to the Bob Isaacson character played by Paul Reiser, who says throughout, who like mentions throughout, all the ways in which he's literally profiting off of having her as a client. He's like, Oh, I took a private plane back from New York and that's because of you. She's like, that's a, what, that's a terrible thing to tell me. Like, why, why would you say that to me? Like he's just saying all that all the time. She is a, a business investment for him. She's not a human. And that's the way in which a lot of people in general in the industry, but especially women are seen. And so I, yeah, I, I don't see that ending as being, um, aggressive towards her or weakening her i see it as being an aggressive condemnation of of the system that put her there so yeah yeah and it's really effective and i i think i really appreciate how um defiantly or strange the the episode is you know i i really 
grooved on it in, in a way that I didn't with the past two. Um, I liked the past two, but this really, this made me lean closer and be like, okay, what is this about? You know? Yeah. Which I appreciate. Yeah. I think, I think for me, like if we're sort of rating the series so far or what have you, like the back half of the second episode or, or the Carrie Bichet half of the second episode really landed well with me. And this episode really landed well with me. Uh, and there's another episode, like I said, I've seen like six of them. There's another episode that just like really, really hit, hit with me. Um, and interestingly enough, it's all these like female characters, (laughs) um, these female centric stories. And so once again, I don't know if that's like Matthew Weiner making, uh, some kind of amends or if it's just me, like that, those are the kind of stories that I naturally gravitate towards or whatever it is. But I think that that's what's been most effective terms of what i've seen from the romanoffs uh which once again the the main theme being like um power aggression entitlement all this sort of stuff and it's like what do women do in that system yeah well that's the thing i i i I think that the reason for i haven't seen the the other episode you were talking about but that the women-centered storylines so far have been more interesting is i mean we had how many seasons of bad men we've seen matthew weiner talk about shitty men you know and 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 he's still talking about them but like it's he's at least trying to frame it in a different way we should not discredit mary sweeney who also wrote the episode um but you know if we're gonna be watching something by him like i'm i'm glad that thus far he has not tried to frame it in such a way of like, well, I don't, I can't help but tell a misogynistic story because those are the times, you know, or whatever. Um, I, I'm glad that, that he's seems to be actually grappling with stuff and, and how, how sort of geared towards atonement that is. I don't know, but, um, it, it feels it's at least glancing in, tor- in that direction. Absolutely. Um, well, that it, that it can only be our hope for the rest of the series. Um, I am glad for all of you who have chosen to listen to this series. Thank you for listening to us grapple with our inner doubts and demons uh, for a lot of this episode. And uh, once again, you can reach us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com if you have your own thoughts about like, you know, what what requires cancellation, what doesn't in a person, what, you know, what art, you know, is worthwhile, what isn't, you know, all of that. Uh, I'm interested for this to be an ongoing conversation because I think this is one of those really interesting gray areas. Some people, it's like a no-brainer. I'm like, oh, I'm done. That's easy. Okay. Um, and then this, I think, is more complicated. And I think that, that is the part that's more interesting to grapple with. Um, as we continue to grapple... Richard, where can people find you? Uh, uh, in a pit on fire with the rest of my family. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was, that was dark. Uh, no, they can find me at Twitter and Ryla as uh, Rylaws and on VF.com. Where, Joanna, can people find you? Oh, um, meticulously rearranging my Rasputin shrine. Um, but, uh, when you, when I'm not doing that, find me on Twitter at Joe wrote this or at vanityfair.com. We will see you next week with episode four of The Romanovs. The Romanovs. The Romanovs. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov? You know, she's a Romanov. Checking in for a Romanov. I'm a Romanov. Is he tired of this Romanov shit? Nicholas Romanov. I could be a Romanov. He's a Romanov too. And if you are watching this video, 
either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.